0: to explain to you just a little bit about uh, why we're doing this series the way we are. And I know I explained it a little bit last week, but uh, as different as the music was last week, it was still uh, church music. So stylistically, not like anything we'd ever done at Artisan before, but it was still church music. And was that beautiful music or what? Yeah. um, If you missed last week, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, it's really great, really, really great stuff, and unfortunately, the recording that I was able to set up was pretty crude, so if you'd like to hear it, I'll provide you with the audio just to talk to me, but it's not, it's not high enough quality to put on our podcast, so um, that's why you don't know miss church, kids, <laughs> and you always leave a note, um, but, but you may remember last week, um, I loved this moment. The choral group had sung three or four of these beautiful, sacred choir pieces, ...to utter silence in the room, which felt very appropriate. And then Moody sort of raised his hand and he said, They're singing so great. Why didn't we clap for them? Um, Which was an an awesome question because, as I mentioned, this whole series, one of the purposes of it is to blur the lines between performance music and worship music. And that can certainly be a tricky balance in the church... Um, but it's, it's a balance that I want us to address because of the way that we as artists Artisan Church think about the arts. It's important for us to think about that balance. Um, and so the music last week blurred that line a little bit. It's going to blur it even more today and in the following weeks. So uh, that's going to be fun. But the other balance that, or the other thing that's the lines that this series is going to blur is the, the lines between Christian music, with air quotes around it, and secular music, with air quotes around that. Um, mainly because I hate that distinction. I think it's almost entirely unhelpful the way it's commonly understood. Um, and uh, I I'm not going to do a sermon on that, but uh, I can tell you more about it certainly in person. But the, one of the points is that music connects with our souls in a way that is um, not always explicitly doctrinally Christian, but is still very much holy and from God. Um, in fact, one of the, if you remember at our fifth Sunday festival when people were telling the stories of their first day at church, I loved that. I, couldn't, I was listening to this. I wasn't here that day, I, so I don't know who said this. But somebody said, my first day at church, I got there, and the band did a prelude of the Rolling Stones song, Wild Horses, and that's when I knew I had found my spiritual home. <laughs> um, and Now, we had that was in context. It made sense. Uh, if it doesn't make sense now, then uh, you know, that's why you don't miss church, kids. But... Um, That kind of thing is exactly what we love happening with our music at Artisan. And that's why sometimes our music doesn't necessarily fit your expectation for what church music should sound like. So, last thing to say before I bring up these uh, Irish musician fools, is I'd like to read you a story from the book of Acts. Um, It's a story about the Apostle Paul, who, as many of you know, was an early opponent of Christianity. As a matter of fact... It was his job to oversee the execution of Jewish apostates who had converted to Christianity, and he did it with relish. Um, But then he had this experience on the road, literally on the road to go kill some more Christians. Uh, He was blinded by a light, and the Lord Jesus himself spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Paul was no longer the chief opponent of Christianity, but the chief proponent of Christianity. He became the most important force in the early church, other than the Holy Spirit, of course, but the most important person, figure in the in the early church, and started Christian communities all over the Mediterranean basin and travel all, all around to do that. And while he was traveling in Athens, he got into an argument with some pagan Greek philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. And they were intrigued by this, and so they asked him to come back and tell them more later, and he did, and then like the whole city of Athens was there. Uh, to hear him talk about this stuff. And he started to explain the gospel, which is just a, a fancy word that derives from Greek. It just means the message, the, the good news of Jesus, to the Athenians. And I want to pick it up in Acts 17.22. If you'd like to follow along, if you're a visual learner, there are Bibles under your chairs, in the wings, and in the seat, pack, seat pockets in the middle here. It's on page 902 in these red Bibles. 17.22. I'm going to read about ten verses of this story. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For, and here he's quoting, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, For we, too, are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, that bit at the end where he's quoting things is a little bit interesting to me. Not only because he's, as the text tells us, quoting poets of a pagan culture, but those poems were not about Yahweh, the Jewish God, the Judeo-Christian God. When, When he's quoting the poem that says, in him we live and move and have our being, and we too are his offspring... Do you know who Paul is talking about? Zeus. He would get thrown out of the church so fast if he did that kind of thing today. I mean, some places you can't even have a harvest party. But it's amazing to me that Paul would convert these pagan Greeks, these Epicureans and Stoics and polytheists who have idols of so many gods that they make an extra one to the one they don't know just in case, so they have their bases covered. He would convert these people by quoting their poetry, their religious songs. Can you see now why I really kind of hate that distinction between Christian music and secular music? <laughs> that's, that's one of the reasons. I've got a bunch more. Including how terrible some of that Christian music sounds. But... <laughs> I won't go too far into that. <laughs> so today, um, my Irish band that I gig with in bars and things on the weekends is, is uh, going to come here, and we're going to play some music for you, which is um, very performance-oriented, so if it's good enough, you can clap, but don't feel like you can't clap in church, um, to answer Moody's question from last week. Uh, but Celtic music has a number of themes in it that seem to recur that I think will probably, I hope, this is the plan anyway put us in the mood to hear a, a kind of a more direct lesson or um, talk about Celtic Christian spirituality. But these themes uh, seem to recur in Irish Celtic music and it's, it's the, a lot of the heartache and pain that the Irish people have felt over the years. Um, famine and war and clashing religious factions. Um, not to mention all the normal heartache that all of us face. You know, lost love and the pain of death and so on. So you get a lot of music um, that covers that history. Uh, And then, of course, in Irish music, there's a long tradition of songs about how people cope with that pain and suffering, um, which is usually with uh, excessive drinking. Um, We're going to lay off those songs for you this morning. We're going to stick to the Irish cultural songs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The hope being that this music, as I said, will put you in the mood to hear uh, a little bit more about St. Patrick and Celtic Christian spirituality. So... Um, Sisters of Murphy, you, you guys want to come up here and join me on this platform? This first song is uh, a song called Minstrel Boy. And, uh, as we're going to dedicate it to my son Abel who uh, when I joined this band I was listening to all the songs over and over again and he loved this song and Abel three years ago I joined this band he still never saw this band play until yesterday afternoon for the first time and that was just part of the band so now Abel you get to hear the full minstrel boy with the full band for the first time that will be pretty cool but this is a really really old song it was actually written at the turn of the century the turn of the 18th century <laughs> um, <laughs> It was written for people who had uh, participated in the Irish Rebellion of 1798, and uh, since then it's been associated with all Irish people at war, um, including the American Civil War and World War I and um, cops in New York City. So this song definitely speaks to that pain of loss and so forth. So this is uh, Minstrel Boy.
1: I feel like I just learned something.
0: They do, (laughs) if you tell them to. (laughs) Uh, Our next song is um, called Fields of Athenry. This is a little bit newer. It was written in the 70s, but it was about an event of the mid-1800s, which you've all heard of, which is the uh, famine in Ireland. And it's about a man who steals food to feed his family, that ancient moral dilemma, uh, which the crown, of course, solved by sending him off to a prison camp in Australia. Uh, and leaving his family behind. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, it's been co-opted by Irish sports teams. Yeah, it's
1: actually the, one of the anthems of the Celtic football club of Glasgow, Scotland, and the Scotland Professional League. <laughs>
0: they
1: pronounce it Celtic. Yeah. <laughs> it's so the Scottish can understand it, too. Oh Thanks
0: All right, our next song is "Leaving of Liverpool," which is a song about leaving your loved ones at home, not to go to prison, but to go seek your fortune.:
1: Or a job, really. Yeah. They had to go pretty far,
0: like to America.:
1: Yeah, very much so. Too many strains. Farewell to you, my own true love There are many farewells But have got
0: this next song by saying this is a song about potatoes <laughs> yeah, because, it <laughs> because it is a praty is a potato i guess it's gaelic or Be a great name for
1: a snack chip dish or something yeah there you go
0: fried praties kind of sounds gross actually but uh this is about a guy who wants to quit working and go dig for gold which uh there's a deep spiritual lesson in there <laughs> read the book of proverbs there's a whole lot of stuff about get rich quick schemes um, and uh, thank you for picking up on the, the clap along thing. This is definitely a clap along song. We will fall apart if people don't clap along during this particular song. Not true. We're professionals, <laughs> enthusiastic amateurs.
1: When I was sorting, I was seldom done resorting The LS and the playhouse And many of the house between I told me brother famous I go off and get a famous And when I come back home again I'll save the whole wide world So goodbye merchant and I'm sick and tired of working I'll no more dig up Brady's I'll no more be a foe Well sure's name is Cardi? I am from California Instead of digging Brady's so I'll be digging lots of gold all the girls at home, I want to see across the foam, out to sing for fortune and far, America. There's silver there and plenty for the whore and for the gentry. And when I come back home again, I never more will stray. So good my merchant jerk, and I'm sick as tired of working. Brandies, I'll no more be a fool Well, sure, my name is Carney I am bound for California Instead of digging Brady's, I'll be digging Lots of gold Goodbye, Merchant Durkin I'm sick and tired of working I'll no more take up Brady's I'll no more be a fool Well, sure, my name is Carney I am bound for California Instead of digging Brady's, I'll be digging Lots of gold oh yeah i love this next one i love the tall tale
0: this is a great tall tale isn't it it's um it's a seafaring song another uh emigration song uh from county cork to new york city and uh the the verses just get progressively more absurd um which is fun it's a classic
1: tavern seaman's tale of one-upmanship
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. And in the, in the original, well, not the original, but in some of the recordings of this song, you have the vocalists going back and forth, changing from verse to verse as if they are one-upping each other. This is our last song, and so um, Tegan and Bryce are going to do some Irish dance during this one, if that's okay with you guys. You can dance wherever you want to, as the song said, but just please be very careful of the communion table because it has fire on it. You are old That's enough. Good. Irish Rover. <laughs> One,
1: two, three. On the 4th of July, 1806, we set sail from the Sweet Cove of Cork. We were... With a cargo of bricks for the grand city hall in New York, it was a wonderful craft. She was rigged for a death, and oh how the wild wind blowed her! She stood several blasts. She had twenty-seven masts. And they called her the Irish Rover. We had one million bags of the best Sligo rags. We had two million barrels of stone. We had. Size of old blind horses' eyes. We had four million barrels of bone. We had five million hogs, six million dogs, seven million gallons of porter. We had eight million males of old nanny goats' tails the whole of the iron. the dance and he sailed on the irish rover we had barney bucky from the banks of the league we had hogan from county Tyrone. we had jimmy mcgurk who was scared stiff of work and a man from Westmeath called malone we had slugger o'toole who was drunk as a rule and fighting bill tracy from Dover The ship lost its way in the fog And that whale of a crew Was reduced down to two just me self And the captain's old dog Then the ship struck a rock God, what a shock The bulkhead was turned right over Turned nine times around And the poor old dog was drowned
0: My friends, uh, Sisters of Murphy When I first suggested this to the band I think one person's response was What possible good could come from that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, But as I said, I hope that this music has gotten you in the Irish Celtic mood, and uh, you get to hear a little bit of talk here about Celtic spirituality. And you may or may not know this, but Celtic Christian spirituality uh, began with St. Patrick. You might have guessed that. I'll tell you more about him in just a minute. First, I want to give you a chance to stand up, say hi to each other, um, pass the peace, You can do that in the traditional way or the fancy, uh, modern, casual way. And while we're doing that, our kids will be dismissed to their children's lesson. And uh, we have a self-serve quiet room here if you'd like to just hear the audio feed with a little baby or whatever. We have a volunteer nursery and classrooms for four to nine or ten. Um, So kids, you can go ahead and go. The rest of you stand up, say hi, and we'll talk about Celtic Christian spirituality in just a minute. If you're by an air conditioner, would you please turn it on? You can freshen your coffee if you'd like, get something to drink. Uh, I'd like to call you back in just about a minute. All right, if you could um, say hi to one more person and grab a seat. Actually, if somebody would grab me a cup of water, I would be really grateful. Thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit about Celtic Christian spirituality and its origins with St. Patrick. And that may or may not be the first thing you think of when you think of St. Patrick. What is the first thing you think of, actually, when when I say St. Patrick? Green beer. 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 I love this church. (laughs) Right. Drunken Drunken people in New York, yes. Snakes was the answer I was fishing for. Uh, to mix metaphors there a little bit. Um, there's a legend about Saint Patrick driving Saint Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland, right? Have you heard that legend? I have no idea if that's true. I'm guessing probably not. Um, excuse me, but it's it's one of those legends that springs up around a tends to happen when when you have a very famous religious figure, a Christian saint. In this case, as time passes. Uh, the people of the culture from which that saint came want to continue to celebrate him, um, but maybe they've lost their religious ardor or, or belief altogether. And so they make up these other little legends. Um, this happened with St. Nicholas, who was a, a Greek Orthodox bishop um, much w- well before he was uh, Santa Claus. Um, but that's the, that's the type of thing that happens. Uh, but I want to tell you the, this, the Christian history around St. Patty. And by the way, it's St. Paddy with two D's, not with two T's. Paddy with two T's is the receptionist at your office. <laughs> Paddy with two D's is a, a, a shortened form of the Gaelic spelling of Padric, which starts P-A-D-R, and then it's like a, a lot of letters. <laughs> okay, so a little, little uh, this is not a spiritual lesson. St. Paddy with two D's, not with two T's. You can venerate Saint Patty as the office receptionist if you like, but just keep it off March seventeenth. Um, so, Saint Patrick, before he was a saint, was raised in a religious home. His we think his grandfather was was a priest or maybe even a bishop in the church. Uh, and of course, this is this is uh, we, the the, the uh, Celtic Christian tradition comes up through Roman Catholicism, but. This story predates the split of the church to east and west, so uh, it was just Christianity then. Um, uh, but Patrick's family was religious, and uh, they were—they were, they were um, actually churchmen. But he, uh, like so many people who are raised in the church, did not necessarily take that on himself to be a personal faith. He had a lot of knowledge about Christianity and its doctrines and so forth, but he was not what you would call a uh, committed. Diehard Christian uh, in the camp parlance, he was not exactly on fire for Jesus, right? Um, but he was—he lived in what was what is now Northern England uh, until he was a teenager, at which point he was taken captive by um, Irish barbarians. We'll talk about barbarians and that, that term in a minute. But he was captured and taken to Ireland, where he was kept in captivity and servitude for many years. And it was in the beautiful rolling hills of Ireland that he began to have an awareness of the personal nature of God and his relationship to him. See, he had all the head knowledge but didn't have it in his heart, so to speak, until he was forced to sit out on an Irish meadow and watch sheep all day long. And if you've ever seen an Irish meadow, you can imagine if you had to look at it for if you're privileged to look at it for hour after hour, day after day, you might get closer to God too. But this happened to Patrick. He had a, a very real, personal conversion experience in Ireland, and dedicated his life, whatever it would be and wherever it would take him, to the service of Christ. After he'd been there for many years, he had a dream saying, your ship has arrived, go get it. And so he fled his captors, talked his way onto a boat, and got passage away from captivity and out of Ireland, Uh, and went back and probably settled back in England, connected with the church again, was consecrated as a bishop himself, and then later in life, I believe it was in his 40s, which is a very old man in the 5th century, to make it to your late 40s, he had another dream. And in his dream, the barbarians of Ireland who had captured him and held him in slavery, kept him in servitude, were saying to him, come back, holy servant boy, and walk among us again. And his heart was stirred to bring the gospel, again, that fancy church word just means the message of Jesus, back to Ireland. Not back to his happy boyhood home, but back to the place where he had been in captivity for years and years. And he returned to Ireland with a passion to evangelize them, to share the news with them, to convert this pagan Irish culture to Christianity. And it was a wildly successful endeavor, as you probably know if you know your history. Um... So the first lesson that I think we have from St. Patrick, and I have two lessons from St. Patrick for you this morning. The first one is this. You ought to be willing to forgive as you have been forgiven. These words are, I hope, familiar to you since they were spoken by Jesus. We've talked about forgiveness a little bit here at Artisan over the years, but it's such a huge thing to think about When I teach my son about forgiveness, it's like, yes, you need to forgive your 17-month-old brother for stepping on your truck, even though he didn't know what he was doing, and that's hard for an 8-year-old. But to us, to, to teach him that, you know, it's sort of like this is the very basics of forgiveness, and I wonder if we don't always get past the basics of forgiveness. We are willing to forgive up to the point where it's easy for us to do so, and then... We close the valve on that. St. Patrick obviously forgave people who had come and stolen him away from his family and everything he knew and forced him into servitude for a decade or more. He had to forgive them to go back and share this good news with them. And if you are a person of faith and you, you feel called, as I think you ought to be, to share your faith and that good news with other people, You have to be willing to forgive them. And it it may just be that in forgiving the most unforgivable thing that you can imagine, you open a door for Jesus to walk through into somebody else's life. So St. Patrick's story encourages us to forgive radically. We've been forgiven radically in in a spiritual sense. And uh, we ought to forgive others. That's the first lesson from St. Patrick. The other thing I want to talk about is how the, the nature of his ministry, Patrick's ministry to the Irish people, was dramatically different from anything else the church was doing at the time. The church's approach to spreading the gospel at the time was a two pronged approach. There was a little bit of debate about which of the prongs happened first, but there was no debate that they must both happen. And the two prongs are, one, Christianize a culture, and two, civilize it. I mentioned that the uh, Christian culture thought of the Irish as barbarians. The definition of barbarian to the, those in the Roman Empire was anybody who's not Roman um, now, the Irish were, were warriors, too, so there, there, may be, there may be, might go a little deeper than that in this case. But the point is, the church had accepted this notion that the entire Roman culture held, which is that we have the proper culture. What we do and the way we act and talk and think and sing is the way that really God wants us all to And so it was no question for them, if we're going to go convert somebody like the Irish, step one is probably going to be to civilize them, to force them to dress right, to change their language, to remove from them their cultural traditions, to make them Roman. And then that will have planted the seed for the gospel to grow. It will fertilize the soil. That was the approach of spreading the gospel until St. Patrick went back to Ireland where he had, remember, you remember, spent his formative years and whose culture he understood intimately. And perhaps that is what enabled him to share the gospel with them in a way that did not require them to surrender their other culture, their traditions, their language. Patrick's approach was to bring... The good news to them using things that they would understand. Very famously, he used the shamrock. Do you know this story? To the the three, you know, the shamrock, to to represent what the Trinity—the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—a classical Christian doctrine—and he used the shamrock to explain that to them. But what you don't hear behind that is that the Celtic people were also, you know, as a pagan culture, they were. Really into numerology and they thought they already thought that there was some spiritual significance to the number three And so patrick used that as well So in this and other ways patrick embraced these so-called barbarians including their culture And their decidedly un-christian religious beliefs And he used all of that to point them to jesus does this sound familiar to anybody? based on the text that I read earlier, from Acts 17. When St. Paul did a similar thing in Athens. See, Patrick didn't require them to become good citizens of the Roman Empire before leading them to Christianity. In fact, he didn't require it after they converted either, by the way. He trusted that the gospel could take root in any culture and grow and blossom and change the lives of any people. So, the second lesson of St. Patrick is that when we are sharing our faith, um, and if you're not comfortable with that phrase, let me just say when you're living out your faith. Let me give you a little aside here, and this will come in. But there are a lot of people within American Christianity who say, I don't really, I'm not comfortable with evangelism. I'm not comfortable sharing my faith. And yet, They will post on Facebook every political photo or slogan that they think speaks to their religious beliefs all day long. What you are doing when you do that, if you do that, is you are trying to civilize a culture without even bothering to try to Christianize it. We're going to talk politics as we get a little closer to the election. Um, and uh, if you 're visiting with us today that you 've probably grown when you hear churches talking politics, I, I certainly would. I promise that when we do we 're going to turn it upside down a little bit. Um, but have you observed that among let 's call them your friends in the, in the church? oh no i don 't want to talk to anybody about Jesus, but oh sure, yeah, I will, I will rail against gay marriage because it says in the Bible that whatever. Um, Or I will, you know, I will post this or that political thing. I don't want to isolate that particular one. I'll make all these statements that I believe express Christian faith, even though it's not really at the core of Christianity. And and to me, that, that dichotomy is so disturbing that people will refuse to, quote, unquote, share their faith, but they will spill it all over, just use Facebook as an example, in a way that's, Um, not helpful. Let's just say it's not helpful to the barbarians. So the point is, lesson number two, we ought not try to civilize people into the kinds of behaviors or politics or opinions that we expect to find in the church. Now, I'm not going to name any specific ideas. I already did one and I didn't mean to. But pick your hot-button Christian cultural... Battlefield. And let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that you are absolutely right. Somebody who is expressing the truth of Christianity in their life would agree with you about that political opinion. That still doesn't mean that they ought to be required to agree with you before they convert. (laughs) All of those things, uh, if they're not extraneous to the message of the cross, they are certainly. Uh, subservient or subsequent under and behind the message of the cross so two lessons from St. Patrick the first is forgiveness, radical forgiveness the second is don't be afraid to allow barbarians to continue to be barbaric as they come to know Jesus yeah, amen <laughs> But NASCAR, that is right out No way <laughs> Tim and I have an ongoing argument about NASCAR I think that true Christian people should not care about stock car racing He thinks <laughs> that the sound of the engine is basically the roar of God himself but <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that told, I, we had this nice little message We had tied it up, he said amen I could have just prayed and we would have been out of here It have been fine I ruined it. Um, Okay, so St. Patrick. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Will you join me and and pray with me? God, we give you thanks for the gift of music, uh, the beauty uh, of that, and how it stirs our souls, even when the, the textual content of it may not be specifically doctrinal. And we give you thanks for the wonderful example of St. Patrick, who, by the power of your spirit, uh, shared the gospel, the message of Jesus, with his captors. And in doing that, uh, started a long tradition of faithful Christianity in Ireland and elsewhere. Uh, We pray that you would help us, as we look to his example, to remember the idea of radical forgiveness, remind us of our own need to be forgiven so that we might be willing to forgive others. And we pray that you'd also strengthen us and give us courage and sensitivity and wisdom as we engage with a culture that is uh, probably every bit as uh, unaware of the truths of Christianity as, uh, as Patrick's culture may have been. Help us to share our faith in ways that don't uh, obfuscate culture, that don't force people to surrender non-essentials in order to see your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, We are going to uh, sing another worship song together. And as we do that, I'd like to invite you to take communion. Um, And I love thinking about the fact that uh, this sacrament has been practiced throughout history. We've talked a lot about history this morning. And it's such an awesome thing to think that This same ritual was practiced by St. Patrick. And uh, there was an amazing moment, probably hundreds of them, in ancient 5th century Ireland when a former pagan barbarian took communion for the first time as an expression of his or her newfound trust in Jesus Christ. Um, And we get to participate in that same thing. And there's this thread that runs all the way back through Uh, to Jesus and his original disciples. And so we don't take that lightly, but we do want to offer it to you every week to be involved in that. Uh, And so Mike and I are going to sing another song, and as we do that, the table is open. Uh, We have an open communion table at Artisan. If you are uh, a Christian, a person trying to follow Jesus, uh, as Tolstoy said, however drunkenly you may be stumbling across the path toward home, um, what matters is that you are getting there. And... uh, the sacrament of communion is not one that should be taken only by people who have everything together because that would defeat the entire purpose of remembering the fact that we look to Jesus because we don't have it all together. <laughs> so our table is open. Uh, if you are not uh, a person who would say you're following Jesus, if you would say you're not a Christian, uh, we love having you here. You are most welcome to be at Artisan this week or any week. Um, we don't expect you to participate in this part of our service. You can simply sit and think, uh, pray, meditate, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, But our table is open. Um, As we sing uh, the song, All Who Are Thirsty, I'd invite you to, uh, to come and participate in communion.